Thanks, Steve. Morning, everyone. It's nice to have a fair number of visitors this morning, and you've come at a good time, actually. Um, We just finished a series on the attributes of God, and so if you're wondering what we believe about God, you can go back 11 weeks and listen to 11 weeks. We talked about 11 things that we believe about God, and uh, so that will get you up to speed really quickly about what we believe and what we're all about. And then this morning, I'm speaking on uh, what we believe about the Word of God. And uh, so we have a little byline that goes with our logo sometimes here at Lakeside. I'm not sure how long Lakeside have had it, but I just confirmed this morning. Um, It was here when I arrived, and I think it was here when Brian arrived, and I checked, and I think it's a John Smith thing. And uh, it's an important part of me coming, really. It says, standing on the Word of God. That's what we do at Lakeside. We We stand on the Word of God. God's Word is absolutely, without a doubt, central to everything we do and why we do it. It's why we preach the way we preach. It's how and why we study the Bible in Bible studies and book studies. It's the Bible where we go to, to know how to govern the church appropriately, how to offer counsel to people. Uh, It's the way in which we care for the poor and the poor in spirit. It's how we respond to our culture, the Bible. We stand on the Bible on everything. Everything stands on the Word of God here. Now, of course, we're not unique as a church in that. You're probably sitting there thinking that that's not new. Pretty much every church down through history has had the Bible at the center of the church. Preaching the Word on a Sunday and responding to the Word through the week has been the backbone of what the church is for centuries. So that's not new. And it's, and it's so pervasive that we almost... Don't even wonder why it is that way. But do you ever wonder why we can have so much confidence in being so Bible-centric? Why the Bible is the center of it all? Why the whole counsel of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is where we hang our hat, where we hang all of our hats? And I have a question for you. We'll just see whether you're awake this morning. Easter was not too long ago. What was the first sermon preached after Jesus' resurrection? Does anybody know the first sermon preached after, Germ- after Jesus' resurrection and who preached it? Anybody want to risk a guess? Peter is a good guess. Mary is a good guess. Well, it was a bit of a trick question. I knew you were going to say Acts 3, Peter's sermon. That's the first sermon after the ascension. The first sermon preached after the resurrection was actually preached by Jesus. It was preached on the same Sunday that he was resurrected. He preached this sermon to a couple of people walking home after the wildest Passover week that had ever happened or would ever happen again. The fact that Jesus took his first resurrection day to preach this sermon, twice in fact, I think, and the content of this sermon says something about it's important. It was probably a couple of hours long. I won't match that. But let's just walk along in this text in Luke chapter 24, if you want to turn there, tap there, or turn there. Just as these two people are walking to Emmaus, and as we walk with them, see what they eventually come to see. See why the message, this message, was so important for Jesus to get across. 
and how this message then shaped the development of the New Testament, shaped the church, became the bedrock of the Christian faith, and continues to shape the ground, the life, and the hope of every Christian since. Or if it isn't shaping the ground of your life, uh, if this first sermon of the resurrected Jesus has somehow slipped in its importance, you may want to make some adjustments, as we'll see from the text. Uh, I'll just pray, and then we'll open God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Luke and his writing that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he captured this for us. And because he captured it and put it in your word, we know that it is for us and for our benefit and for your glory. And so that's what we pray for this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So to give you a little bit of context, Luke chapter 24 is an account of that resurrection Sunday. Luke summarizes the whole morning of that day in 12 verses, the women assembling their spices, bringing the spices to the tomb, discovering the tomb empty, meeting the angels, being told to remember what Jesus had told them, that he must be crucified and rise on the third day, then the women returning to the 11 and all the rest of the followers that were with the 11, them not being believed and Peter and John running to the tomb and seeing the empty tomb, but still not believing the rest of the story that Jesus was actually alive. And after the summary of those events in Luke 24, which we get more detail of in other Gospels, Luke saves the first appearance of the risen Jesus in his Gospel for this account of Jesus meeting two of his followers on a side road, heading to a small town outside of Jerusalem, on the last Sunday or the Sunday after Passover. And it's a big text, and normally I would read the text and we would unpack it, but what I want to do is just kind of journey through the text. So as I read the text, I will be unpacking it as we go and considering the implications of it. It begins this way, that very day, so this is the same day that Luke is talking about, that very day, Sunday of the resurrection, almost certainly late afternoon, we learn later, all the earlier events have taken place, And these guys are going to talk about having seen all of these earlier things themselves. So that very day, two of them, and you're going to think, who is the them? So if you back up, it says that the women went and told the 11 and the rest of them that were there. And so this is two of them, two of the rest of them. These aren't two apostles, but it's two followers of Jesus that were there. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, this is an incredible condescension that we see here in Jesus. This is the day of his resurrection. Just let that sink in for a minute. All, All of creation and all of history was aimed at and waiting for this day to take place since our fall in Eden. And on the great day of the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead, so far he's been seen by a few women, mistaken as a gardener, and now he's going for a walk with these two guys to Emmaus. Right? Like, he, he's not coming out in the temple. You know, he's not, like, hanging in the clouds. He's not shining like the sun in Jerusalem center square. He's just a gardener in a garden and a guy walking along the road. And that's it. And he, he's just walking along with these guys to a town that nobody today even knows where it existed. You can't find Emmaus. It was so small, it's just gone. It, it's like on his resurrection day, Jesus' big plans were to meet two obscure dudes walking down Galert Road. You know, or the Harburn. To talk to them for a couple of hours as they go along. What was so important that this is where Jesus 
spends his time. And what's he talking about? This should intrigue us. And it goes on, it says, and, and they, the two guys, were talking with each other about all these things. Put these things in your mind, because these things keeps coming up in this text. What are these things? They're talking about all these things that happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew new and went, drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And that's sort of interesting, again, that the resurrected Jesus, again, is not shining like the sun. He doesn't have a halo or any outward signs of his new glorified body. He apparently still looks like a gardener. He's just walking home after work. But the implication here is that these disciples would have been able to recognize him. The resurrected Jesus is the human Jesus. They would have known him right away, except Jesus wanted to keep them in the dark a little longer, and so he kept them from recognizing him. It's not that they didn't recognize him. The verb is very clear. Jesus kept them from recognizing him. Jesus doesn't want them to see him yet. Now, He does want them to see him, as we'll discover later. Jesus wants them to see him, and their eyes are going to be opened, but there is a very special way in which Jesus wants them to see him on the other side of his resurrection. And it will be important, especially after he is gone, that his disciples can see him the way that he wants them to see him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Uh, The question of Jesus brings them to a standstill. (laughs) As if by asking the question, all the events of the Passover week have just kind of collapsed on these two disciples again. And they look sad, literally, histemai skuthropos. They stood mournfully. These two guys. These are followers of Jesus, not the 11, but close followers. And they're really struggling to understand what has just happened to their world. The triumphal entry at the start of the week made a lot of sense. The powerful teaching and the cleansing of the temple, they were right there with Jesus. I get it. I've heard the teaching. He's the one. He's the Messiah coming in triumphal, cleaning out the temple, teaching like nobody can teach from the temple steps. All the messianic notes were being hit for these guys, but then the week ends very badly for them. As they are about to describe now, one of them then turns, named Cleopas, And answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? There's the things. Do you not know these things? What things? What things are we talking about? We sometimes forget just how widely spread the news of Jesus, his trial, and his crucifixion had gone. Everything that happened in Jerusalem happened very publicly. There were tens, if not hundreds of thousands at the triumphal entry. Jesus taught on the temple steps, a temple surrounded by pilgrims that came from the entire country to sacrifice there. He threw out the money changers. His trial, uh, the chief priest was in an open courtyard with the public looking on. His trial before Pilate was before all the people. They literally got a vote between Jesus and Barabbas. And then the crucifixion itself Something to note on a major road going into Jerusalem on the biggest holiday of the year. Everybody knew what had happened. And these two followers of Jesus are stunned. Like, do you not know what happened this Passover? They can't believe it. 
How do you not know these things? What things? Jesus answers, tell me about these things. You see, these things are important. Luke has these big arrows in the text kind of pointing to the things that are going to be described. And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, these things, (laughs) a man who was a prophet. Notice they say was. He was a prophet. (laughs) Not anymore. Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, past tense again, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. The things that matter all have to do with Jesus and his crucifixion. That's Jesus at the center of all things. And they say that Jesus was a prophet, which is correct. Jesus is God's prophet. But they had to get to the heart of it. He was delivered up. He was condemned and crucified. The followers had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. That that word redeem is important. That means these guys really saw Jesus as the Messiah. They understood very much about what Jesus was saying about who he was. They are not skeptics. They had really believed that Jesus was the promised Redeemer. And they even tip their hand and give away the fact that they even know that the third day was significant. They say it's even the third day since these things happened. And yet they're leaving town sad, despondent, mournfully, even though they know all these things. But it's getting late in the day, in the third day, And Jesus hasn't shown up. Nothing has come to pass the way they expected. They've given up. Despite what they've heard. (laughs) They kind of dig themselves into a hole here. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he, they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but they did not see. So they remembered that Jesus telling them about the third day. They knew the third day was important. It's now the third day. They have witnesses that the tomb is empty, witnesses that Jesus is alive, And talking to Mary Magdalene, Peter and John confirm half of the women's story that the tomb really is empty, and yet still no one believes the rest of the story, that Jesus is actually risen. Why do they not believe? And the only thing missing to everyone except the women who saw him is actually seeing Jesus with their own eyes as Mary did. They could not believe that Jesus was really resurrected despite everything they just admitted they know, until they could actually see Jesus. Remember, Jesus kept them from seeing him, kept them from recognizing him. And this is what Jesus needs to fix. He gets it. These disciples of mine need to see me. But Jesus wants them to see him in a very specific way now. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So they're walking along with this guy who looks like a gardener. And this gardener basically rebukes these disciples. It's not a strong rebuke, but it is a rebuke. Something needs to be done, you foolish people, slow of heart to believe. 
Now let's consider the condition these disciples are in. They're mournful, they're confused, they're sad, they don't understand who Jesus is walking right beside them, and their lack of understanding makes them foolish and slow of heart. It's not a good condition that these disciples are in. It's not how we would want to be left if we were followers of Jesus. And so now Jesus is going to preach his sermon. And we just have a summary of it. But it probably took place on this walk of maybe a couple hours, seven miles, we're told. 60 stadia from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And so they're probably not walking all that fast given that they're, you know, mournful and sad. So a couple hours maybe. And we get the summary of this sermon that Jesus teaches. He says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So it's not a short sermon. (laughs) Because Jesus is now talking to these two guys as they're walking along. And beginning with Moses and with the prophets... He goes through all their scriptures. So that's Old Testament. That's the Bible they had. He goes through all the scriptures, right up to the end of Malachi, the Italian prophet. (laughs) Malachi. Malachi. Pronounce your Hebrew correctly. Get confused. Right? Genesis to Malachi. Jesus teaches about himself. So these things, the events of Passover week, especially the suffering and the trials and the torture and the rejection, the condemnation, the crucifixion, these things about Jesus are at the heart of everything. And as they're walking along, Jesus interprets all the scriptures of these things concerning himself. He says, look, you guys, don't you see it? Your entire Bible is talking about me. These things that you have seen this week... How do you not see? You just admitted that you knew Jesus was a prophet, that he was God's redeemer. You even noticed the three-day thing that he taught you about. And this is the third day. You admit it. You just admitted you knew that, you know, you were just told by the women that the tomb was empty and you're still not seeing it. And I'll admit, I have few complaints about what's missing in the Bible. That doesn't mean that the Bible is incomplete. There's just things I wish were in there. And of all the parts that I wish just had a little bit more in them, this one has to be in the top three, if not the top one. I would want this teaching. I don't want it summarized in one sentence. I want Jesus to teach me about himself from the Old Testament. But we don't get it. We just get the summary. Imagine Jesus teaching these two barely known disciples how everything from Genesis to Malachi is talking about him. He starts with Moses and the prophets, but in the end he goes through all scriptures with them. And this is what they have to see, what we need to see. The whole counsel of God, the whole Bible is talking about Jesus. The entire scripture is pointing us at this one person and especially at this one week, this one moment when the Son of God suffers on the cross for all of creation. We don't have that sermon, but we can imagine parts of it because on this side of the cross and with this instruction and with the teaching of the apostles, we have an idea of what Jesus was teaching and we have his reference notes because we have the Old Testament. I imagine in Genesis chapter 3, he would point to God's promise that the seed or the offspring of Eve would eventually crush the head of the serpent. 
And even while that offspring himself was being bruised in the process, he might even show how the blood sacrifice of Abel was accepted while Cain's vegetable sacrifice was not in Genesis 4, or how God provided for Abraham a substitute sacrifice in the form of a ram for his son Isaac in Genesis 22. It wasn't Isaac who would be the ultimate sacrifice for the world, but a sacrifice was coming who God would not substitute for. And who would give himself for the world? Given the day it was, I'm pretty sure that Jesus would have shown the rescue of Israel from Egypt by the blood of a Passover lamb in Exodus 12 and the subsequent sacrificial system that atoned for the sins of the people by the blood of innocent animals. He could have talked about being the rock that was smitten in the desert to give living water to the people in Exodus 17. He could show them the significance of the mercy seat and the sprinkled blood in the Holy of Holies to enter the presence of God in Leviticus and Deuteronomy or the design of the temple and the preparation of the high priest. He could point to the second and third oracles of Balaam even to show the line of Judah and the exalted king that would come to rule Israel at a time when Israel didn't even have a king yet in Numbers 23. And after skimming through the books of Moses, of course, Jesus could almost certainly spring off of the prophet Isaiah the chosen servant of Isaiah 42, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and the eternal throne of the Messiah established forever as seen in Second Samuel, a kingdom and dominion that would be over all people, all nations, all languages, as Daniel was shown in chapter 7, to rule over Jew and Gentile together in Amos 9, who will conquer all his enemies in Psalm 110, who will rise as a son of righteousness for healing of his people in Malachi 4. He could even show the many ways that he was anticipated in the account of Joseph, who was hated by his brothers and sold into death, they thought, until he appeals as their forgiving rescuer, as God uses the result of their sin as a means of restoration of the people. Or Boaz, the kingsman redeemer, who's able to make the most foreign enemy, a Moabite woman, into a true Israelite and restore her from death to life from the presence of bitterness to joy. We could go on and on. And I'm sure Jesus did. He he just went through the Old Testament. Me, 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 me. This is where you have to see me. You have to see me in my word. But to hear that from Jesus himself, that would be fire. Literally. Literally. This fire to these two when it all finally lands on them at the end. They're just walking and talking, captivated, as Jesus' rebuke of their foolishness turns into revelation. It goes from rebuke to revelation. Man, I'm jealous of these guys. So they drew near to the village as this sermon is going on, and they're walking and listening. And they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So it's really late in the afternoon, getting close to evening. Uh, Jewish days roll over at 6 o'clock. So they're thinking it's, um, I don't know, late afternoon, something. And they were walking home, believing that it was all for nothing. But then this sermon. 
this teaching from this average guy they meet on the road, and they're captivated by it. They urged him strongly, don't go, stay. It's almost evening. You know, just come and eat with us. Don't leave us. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. How they could see now. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. (laughs) Like as soon as they could see him, he was gone. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. See, this is what Jesus needed to do for these disciples. What he needs to do for us. Because he's not going to be around. We're not going to be able to see Jesus the way Mary did and the way he then appears to the disciples later. And they finally saw him and they believed. And he said, well, it's great, you know, that, you know, that you see me and believed, but blessed are those who don't see and believe. <laughs> and what Jesus had to tell these disciples and then later tell the 11 and the rest of the disciples is, you got to see me here in my word. I'm here in the Old Testament. I'm here in the Bible you got to see me here. This is where I want you to see me now. And notice the end result is not that these disciples are amazed at the physical Jesus and his disappearing trick. They look at each other, and what they're left with is exactly what Jesus wants them to be left with. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked, while he opened the scriptures? That's what Jesus wanted to accomplish. Don't be amazed at me. Here I am in the flesh. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Be amazed at this, that I am here in my word, and you can find me here and know me here. And this is what the author Luke wants us to see. This is what Jesus spent his resurrection day at. You see me here. You see me, Jesus. But look, this is me here in my word. If you want to see me, you have to see me here because my word is me and if you can't see me here in the word you're not going to see me in the person you guys had the whole scripture you knew it but you didn't see me you couldn't see me but then Jesus opens up the word so that they can see it he unlocks it in their heart And then bang, he's gone. And they're left on fire with the knowledge that he's opened to them the scriptures. And so these guys get up again right away and they walk back to Jerusalem, probably faster this time. Let's say it took them maybe an hour and a half. And and then we see that they actually get the same sermon again, I think, along with the rest of the disciples. Because while they are busy telling the disciples what had just happened to them on the road, Jesus appears in their midst and he scares the other disciples. They think he's a ghost. And I'm just continuing on in Luke 24. If you keep going, you'll follow with me. But he eats a piece of fish to make them feel better. See, I'm eating fish. I'm not a ghost. And maybe he's hungry. I don't know. Resurrection's got to be hard. So he eats some fish, so they're not afraid. And then you see he does it again. Then he said to them, this is now the 11 and the rest of the disciples and the two that hightailed it back to Jerusalem. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He does it twice. Now, he doesn't say there, when he says then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures, he doesn't say there that he preached the whole sermon over again, but I like to think that that's how he opened their minds. That's how he opened the minds of the two on the road, Why wouldn't he open the minds of the rest of the disciples the same way? So 
you know, whether he preached the sermon again or whether he just opened their minds spiritually, I don't know. But you see the importance of it. Twice now, Jesus has gone to his disciples and said everything from Moses to the prophets, and now he adds to the Psalms, which is the, the wisdom literature. Moses, prophets, Psalms, the whole Old Testament, the whole Hebrew scripture is about understanding me. That's what you've got to understand. This opening, this knowing that he grants to the disciples is basically then the whole story of the New Testament teaching and the formation of the New Testament church. If you look at Acts and the epistles of Paul and Peter and James, what are they doing? They are almost exclusively unpacking the Old Testament into the New because their minds have been opened. They've had the scriptures unlocked to them so that they can see Jesus. And so Paul says Jesus is the rock that was smitten in the wilderness. He is the serpent that was the bronze serpent that was lifted up to cure the people of the plague. That's Jesus lifted up. He is the curse that is hanging on the tree. Paul unpacks the Old Testament in the New, and we get new scripture from the apostles. We get new scripture from the apostles that is basically just unpacking what Jesus showed them. Before his crucifixion, Jesus had promised his disciples in John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus unlocks the Old Testament for the apostles and the disciples, and he sends the Holy Spirit so that they remember what he said. So now they can read the Old Testament properly, and they can actually remember and teach Jesus properly. So Jesus had already begun the work of opening up the minds of the disciples to the truth before the Holy Spirit came. Jesus unlocked the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit comes at his ascension and and unlocks the words of Jesus. And, And he helps them remember the words of Jesus by the Spirit. And then they're able to teach as Jesus taught by the power of the Spirit to interpret for us the Old Testament and what became the New Testament and show us Jesus in it all. Second Peter says it this way, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So you're Peter now, you're writing later in your life, how does Peter have the prophetic word of the Old Testament more fully confirmed? Because Jesus came, he showed up, ate some fish, and unlocked it for me. (laughs) He confirmed it. He opened up the scripture to me, to which you will do well to pay attention What should we pay attention to? New Testament people he's talking to. Hey, New Testament people, you would do well to pay attention to the Old Testament prophets. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus interpreted the Old Testament for the disciples. The disciples are interpreting it by the Holy Spirit, by what Jesus told them. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, just as the Holy Spirit will bring to mind the things the apostles needed to remember, and as they are writing and teaching, the Holy Spirit is infusing it all. Paul says it this way. That was Peter. This is Paul. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Paul says this stuff is important. It is written for us. Don't say the Old Testament is irrelevant. Realize that much of the Old Testament was like over a thousand years old when these guys were reading it. So you can imagine some teenage Hebrew saying, Why are we reading this thousand-year-old book? It's not even relevant to today. It doesn't say anything about Herod or Pilate. 
And Paul says, no, this stuff is not irrelevant. This stuff that was written down was written for our instruction today. We even have an example of his work in the word of God in the formation of the early church. Look how this goes. One of us, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So here's Paul now, who has his heart opened to be able to preach the word as Jesus would have him preach it. And as he's preaching it, the Lord opens up Lydia's heart so that she can understand what Paul is saying. This is how the word of God works in us. It's incredible. When you read Paul's letters, the things that he would be saying, pretty much everything Paul teaches is straight out of the Old Testament. He's unpacking Abraham for us, and Israel for us, and kingdom for us, and David for us, and Solomon for us. And that's sort of obvious because the Old Testament was the whole Bible in his day, so everything Paul taught was the same thing Jesus was teaching to those disciples on the road and taught to the eleven. And so Paul opens up scripture to Lydia and to us, and the Holy Spirit opens up that scripture in our hearts. Well, that's Peter and Paul, but John says it this way. He was there too. John was there, and he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Here's John, late in his life. He's probably like an 80-year-old man here when he's writing this letter. And he says, The Son of God has come and given us understanding. When did that happen? We just read about it in Luke 24. Jesus showed up, ate some fish, opened John's eyes. So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. John had it opened up to him in what Jesus had done and said and taught, and he saw that, but specifically he saw it when Jesus opened his heart to it on that resurrection Sunday. What should we take away from all of this then? I just have four simple applications that are not very long. First one is understand that the whole council of scripture the entire bible is about jesus in fact since jesus is not here right now he wants us to see himself in the scriptures if we're ever going to see jesus then we will see him where he has opened up our hearts and minds to see him in scripture you're looking for jesus look for him in the word of god build your church on scripture build your life on scripture because the personal word of god is in the word of god The word points us to the word and says, find me here. This is where you need to go to see me. (laughs) I mean, are you walking along like these disciples wondering when's Jesus going to show up? (laughs) Or or like, I'm pretty despondent right now. I'm just walking away from it all because I don't see Jesus. Jesus came to them and said, if you're looking for me, I'm in here. I'm in the Bible. Look for me there. The whole scripture is about Jesus, and so that means an implication for today is you cannot unhook the New Testament from the Old Testament. There's there's pastors out there, there's a movement began with sort of the red-letter Christians and some of those guys, but it's sort of gaining momentum. You will find pastors and churches out there that are saying, we need to unhook ourselves from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is confusing to people, and it's offensive to people, and there's weird stuff back there, and rules, and it's all law, and it's not really about Jesus and his relationship with us. You... They should talk to Jesus about that. You can't unhook 
the New Testament from the Old Testament. It's madness. Virtually every teaching about Jesus in the New Testament comes directly out of the Old Testament. I don't know how you preach the New Testament without recognizing it's dependent on the Old Testament. When John or Peter or Paul or James got up to preach their only Bible for the first few decades of the church was the Old Testament, and they spent decades preaching Jesus out of the Old Testament, just as they were taught. What pastor or scholar today can conceivably imagine that we can unhook the New Testament from the Old? What Christian would want to content themselves with only reading the New Testament and missing everything that Jesus himself taught these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Don't miss the teaching of Jesus. It's in the Old Testament. Reading your Bible to see Jesus is the most important thing you can do for yourself. If you're wondering where Jesus is, if you are standing mournfully in your life, or if you are just walking away from it all, calling it quits, Jesus might walk up right beside you. He might not look like Jesus. He might look like your neighbor. He might look like a gardener. But he will point you to Scripture, and he will encourage you, look for me here. You will see me again. Your heart will burn again as you see me in Scripture. Anybody who's been a Christian here for a while knows what I'm talking about. When you open up the Word of God and you're just reading it and he's hitting you with it and your heart burns within you. I mean, it's what I'm addicted to up here, okay? Just full confession. (laughs) Because my heart would burn in studying the Bible. And I just had to, you know, vent it a little bit. So that's why I do what I do. But you can do that for each other. You can do that for yourself. You can open the Bible. And Jesus, your heart will burn as you let the Holy Spirit show you Jesus in the Bible. Old Testament and New. And that's why showing someone Jesus in the Bible is the most important thing you can do for someone else. For them. Walking beside someone and helping them see Jesus in the Bible. Coming coming out of these, you know, just these words on a page. You know, Jesus comes out of these, this ink on a page. It's like a miracle. I mean, it's not written any differently. It's just ink on paper like every other book. But this book, when you open it and you can show somebody how Jesus comes out of those words that were given by the Holy Spirit to be written down, to be preserved for us, for our instruction today, so that we can see what these disciples saw. It's the most important thing you can do for them. You may think that they need help with this or that or they need instruction in that or you could give them some advice here, whatever. The most important thing you can do for anyone you know is show them how to read the Bible and see Jesus in the Bible. And everything else will take care of itself after that. The Word is filled with the Spirit of God. It's filled with Jesus. And when you read the Bible and see Jesus in the Bible... Your heart burns, and it doesn't leave anyone unchanged. That's how important the Word of God is to us here at Lakeside. You, we, build, we stand on the Word of God. You build a church on the Word of God. You build a life on the Word of God. There is no firmer foundation because all of the Scripture speaks of Jesus. And so Lakeside... And all of us always be a people that stand on Scripture and trust them, that delight in them, that see Jesus on every page of Scripture, because he's there on every page. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we could go on this journey with these two pretty much unknown disciples, 
We don't even know who the second one was. Maybe his wife. They were walking home together. So let's say it's Cleopas and his wife. And they're walking home, and you just come alongside, and you take them on a journey that is way better than a seven-mile walk to Emmaus. You take them on a journey through Scripture, and you take us on a journey through Scripture every week, every day that we are in it. So, Father, again, I just pray that conclusion, that may we be a church that stands forever only on your word, the written word and the living word of Jesus Christ. And may we be a people that stand on your word. May we be a people that look diligently into your word to see Jesus, because it all speaks of him, and he is our hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.